Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. My name is Nick Gillespie. If we have not had the opportunity to meet, I am one of the pastors here at Covenant Church, uh, and I'm excited to open up God's Word together. Uh, we are re-engaging in a, a sermon series that I had started back in January. Not that we, it has been continuous in the sense of week after week after week. It's, you know, we're kind of taking a look as the year kind of unfolds at the scriptures and what the scriptures has to say, how, is it, how does it inform the community, the gospel community, the church of how it is that we are to treat and be in relationship with one another. And so if you haven't heard uh, one of those sermons before, I would highly encourage you particularly to listen to the first one because it really lays the groundwork for what we're going to do today as we open up James. Um, and that's kind of really going to be our focus is uh, through this sermon series throughout the years is the book of James. James, as he writes, he's, he's having and asking the church to examine themselves, which I mean, like, I don't like to be examined <laughs> at all. Uh, but there is that sense of like us looking at God's word and saying, how are we doing at this? And then being re-reminded at the high calling that we have in Christ to love each other. And what does that practically look like for us? And so that's kind of where we're going this morning as we take a look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Uh, but before we kind of examine ourselves and look at the high challenge, I thought I'd start by sharing a story of my own personal failure. That way you can, can feel like I, I can relate to you. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I've, as I've been engaged in community, there's lots of different ways that I've just failed to care for the family of God. Uh, it's about a decade ago. Yes, I'm old enough that I can speak in my life in decades. Um, it was about a decade ago that actually, just, just to kind of paint a picture of the season of my life, you know, so late 20s, Allie just had uh, our twins who were only 11 months younger than their older brother. So we had three kids like within one year. Um, they just weren't in the same pregnancy. Um, so there was like that going on in our life. Uh, I had actually just started a new role in my job. I was helping actually plant ministries like around the world um, as well as doing what I was doing on campus at BGSU and, and all those on my shoulders. And at about this time, I started, uh, with all of this, I started a uh, a a small group for fraternity men and sorority women with one of my other coworkers. And it actually, it was a great small group, uh, such, such a, an eclectic group of people who like got together to, to learn together, laugh together. They just dealt with all kinds of like crazy things. Um, but it was really life-giving, really enjoyed it. Uh, but even amongst like this group of people, there was just some odd, strange needs that came up, things that were happening in students' lives that uh, where they just needed like support. Well, a couple years kind of goes by, and one of the guys that like, I mentored and was a part of our group had graduated and had gotten a job down in Cincinnati. Uh, if you know me, I have a love for Cincinnati. I really think it's a promised land. Um, but he got a job down in Cincinnati, and I was down there uh, visiting him and like, some other people, just kind of catching up and stuff. So we like, go to B-dubs, um, have some wings, and hang out and all this kind of stuff. And you know, we're talking about like, the good old days you know, in this fraternity, sorority, Greek, you know, small group that we have. And, uh, you know, I want to remember all the good stuff. And he said, Nick, you know, I had some great times, but if I can just sort of say this as a friend, uh, there were some ways that you meant, and one way in particular that uh, you let me down as, as a mentor in my life. 
And he didn't say this because he was trying to go after me. I think he, he cared about me, and I think he wanted me to have a true picture of, of how he experienced my leadership and my shepherding in his, his own life. And he's like, do you remember that evening that I called you, and my, mo- my dad was just admitted to the hospital, and it looked terminal. It looked like he might like end his, lose his life. And I said, yeah, like I remember that. I remember where I was standing in my room when he called me. I remember it was about 6.30 at night. You know, the kids are crying in the background, you know, something like that. And he just said, well, you know, when I called you, like I, I had a need and you weren't present. I mean, yeah, like I pick up the phone. Yeah, like I asked like the questions and I did the thing. But my heart wasn't in it. I wasn't present with him. And when he brought that up, I agree, like I knew what he was saying. I agree, I was distracted I was tired, I was whatever. But in this moment, this guy that I loved and cared about needed me to be present with him. As he said in his own words, he's like, Nick, my dad was dying. He was dying. And I felt like you didn't care. I mean, that was hard to hear. But to be honest, that, that season of my life, there was a lot of different ways where I just withheld my heart from people trying to just sort of keep things nailed down at home, trying to get work responsibilities done, that I was not willing to give myself to people that I love, to people that I cared about. And so this morning, that's where we're going, is how are we doing at caring for one another? How is it that we actually are willing to, to do something when people have needs? Our big idea this morning is this, holy community. Set-apart community is evidenced by a living faith rife with works. That word rife means, means full, complete. Therefore, we as a church, we as covenant, are to be diligent that no one among us would be lacking. That we take great pride that no one among us would be lacking in their needs. So let's open up James and see what he has to say to us this morning Let me read. This is God's word, starting uh, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, I have faith, or sorry, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well. But even the demons believe that and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them another way. For as a body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead." If you have your uh, Bibles open, you can keep them open because we're actually going to kind of pick this thing apart and kind of figure out. James says a lot with his series of questions and what he's trying to go after in regards to the church. Particularly, he's trying to address the church's weak 
theology and how they are utilizing this weak theology to justify a stingy lifestyle towards meeting the needs of people within the church. Now, if you've been around the block a little bit, and maybe you haven't, that's okay, but if you've been around the block a little bit and you've read the scriptures a little bit, some people suppose that there's a conflict between James, who's an author in the New Testament, and Paul, another prolific author in the New Testament, about faith and works and how it is that those two come together and us standing rightly before God. I'm not going to go down that trail because I actually kind of went down that trail in the very first sermon that we looked at, um, but I'm just going to address it here briefly. Paul wrote in uh, Romans, you are justified by faith alone and not by works, is what he says. And he's right to say that. And James would agree with that as well. In fact, Paul and James saw eye to eye about how faith and faith alone in the work of Christ made us have be able to have right standing before God. Paul recounts in Galatians chapter two that uh, as James is kind of holding down the fort and leading the church back in Jerusalem, Paul was traveling all over the Roman Empire at the time, planting churches and was teaching, instructing people and sharing the good news of Jesus and how they could be justified in the work of Christ. Well, Paul gets back, and there was some controversy about Paul and maybe some of the things he was or wasn't teaching, that Paul made need to make sure that he was like, him and James were on the same page because they were two of the most prominent teachers of the time. And so they and a small cohort of people got together, and again, Paul says this in chapter two, he's recounting this, they, they compared notes. James, what are you teaching about the gospel? Paul, what are you teaching about the gospel? Oh, great, we agree, we're teaching the same thing. And Paul walks away being fully approved by James, and James, vice versa, that they're teaching the same things about being justified by faith alone. The one thing that James says to Paul as he's leaving is one thing I ask, Paul, as you continue your ministry is don't forget the poor. And Paul says, I'm right there with you, buddy. I don't want to forget the poor either. And so that's kind of how their conversation goes. You see, as we read this passage, James uses the same word faith in two different ways. And so we've got to be a little discerning here that he's comparing the difference between Real faith versus bogus faith. Real faith versus bogus faith. Bogus faith is described by James as being dead, barren, and a faith that can't save you because it actually doesn't transform your life. It's devoid of the power, the life-giving power of God through his spirit in you. And real faith is transformative because it's evidenced by works. It's completed by works. That real faith is active alongside of works in the things that we do in fulfilling the law of God. Uh, I've recently got into this new uh, Netflix uh, uh, sitcom called The Crew. I don't know if you've seen it. It's really funny. It's got Kevin James in it. Kind of reminds you a little bit of Kings of Queens. Um, anyways, but it's, the, the premise of the show is that there's this NASCAR racing team, and it's kind of all about like the inner workings and their relationship and stuff like that. So you've got like the owner and the crew chief, and your driver and your engineer and your mechanic and you know, all, all their relationships that are, are going on. And what's, in NASCAR, what's really big is you know, who's your hood sponsor? Who's the main sponsor of your racing team, because they're the ones that pay the bills. They're the ones that really front the majority of money that it costs to be a racing team. And so uh, for this particular epi- uh, uh, racing team, their big hood sponsor is Big Hoof Barbecue. Big Hoof Barbecue. I mean, that sounds like a NASCAR-like type of hood sponsor, you know? Great, you know, brisket, pork, beans. You know, the driver, like, kind of brags about the fact that he can go to any Big Hoof restaurant and he can eat for free, and he loves it. Well, the owner, 
you know, is retiring and he's turning it over to his millennial Gen Z, you know, daughter. And she's got some new progressive ideas of how to like run this NASCAR team. And she says, you know, real meat is a, is a thing of the past. People are really into artificial meat. In fact, the, she trades out, swaps out this um, uh, hood sponsor for fake steak is the new hood sponsor for, uh, for their racing team. And fake steak is a plant-based steak made out of mushrooms or something like that. And what's really funny about it is that no one within the crew like buys it because they all say it's not the same thing as real meat. But they got to have it because, you know, that's get some more publicity, more, more funding, all that kind of stuff. But that, that's the thing, right? I mean, real meat, real meat is made out of animal muscle, which is comprised of water, protein, and fat. That's real meat, water, protein, fat. But if you look at like the Impossible Burger, which is a plant-based burger that I think you can find at like Burger King and I think even BG Burger. We've tried it before. It's, it's just a weird experience. Um, here, I looked up. Here's some of the ingredients of the Impossible Burger. Water, okay, we're there. Water, water, you know. Soy protein concentrate, coconut oil, sunflower oil, natural flavors. Potato protein, methylicellulose, sounds like methane. Yeast extract, culture, dextrose, food starch, modified, soy leg, hemoglobin, salt, mixed tocopherols. Mixed tocopherols. Soy protein, isolate vitamins and minerals. Someone please describe half of those ingredients to me. I will give you a, a bonus gift card to Starbucks or something like that, you know? There's like 1,200 ingredients in Impossible Burger. Now, I know some of you are like vegans and you're like really into the plant-based meat products and you are welcome to send me any zeitgeist kind of type of YouTube videos that you can find and I'll watch them and maybe you might be able to convince me, but real meat is real meat. Water, protein, and fat. That is real beef, right? And what James is saying is when someone has a knee and you say, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Good luck with that. That's bogus faith. That's not real faith. Real faith says, I care about you. Let me press in here. Now, we're going to kind of come down to this next paragraph uh, in verses 18 through 26. And what James begins to do with the church there is he's going to talk to them that justified people live a just life. Justified people live a just life. He's going to take the church to task on their poor reasoning and poor theology that they've kind of propped up to sort of alleviate them of the responsibility of caring for the needs that are within the church. So before we kind of get into the text here a little bit, I want to kind of dream with you a little bit. Let's pretend, okay? Let's pretend that you have a really amazing gift of graffiti art, okay? You're just really great with spray paint and, you know, you can create beautiful things. And you want to create beautiful things, but you're not allowed because it's illegal. And so in the cover of night, you make your way into downtown Bowling Green or Haskins or Perrysburg or, you know, wherever it is. And, you know, you just begin to spray paint the sides of buildings, creating beautiful things for people to enjoy. And as you're walking around town, you know, you hear people talking about the beautiful paintings that, like, you're, you're, you know, you're making. You're like, man, this is a good thing that I'm doing. And then finally, you get caught in the middle of the night. And now you must go to jail because it's illegal. And so you're now before the judge 
The judge says, no matter what you're making, it's illegal, and you now must pay the repercussions of all the graffiti and vandalism that you've done to our city. And, you know, let's hypothetically say it's like $50,000. Now, some of you are like, I could, you know, I could cover, cover $50,000. But in the pretend world, you're a college student who works at McDonald's to pay the bills. You don't have $50,000. There's no way you're going to be able to foot that bill. And the judge says, well, hey, you're going to go to jail if you can't pay for what you owe. Well, you don't want to go to jail, right? And then in, at that very moment, walks in a benefactor. And he or she foots the bill for you. They say, judge, I'm going to cover them. And right there, they get out a check, they write the check for $50,000, and they buy your freedom. Well, what was it for? What was your freedom bought for? What are you to now do with the freedom that you now have that this person has purchased for you? Well, the church, with their freedom had set up a series of ways of how they thought about themselves and their theology in order to give themselves permission to continue to live for themselves. In verse 18, where James first brings up kind of the first sort of like false, fake, you know, bad reasoning for not caring for one another, some people are like, hey, I have the gift of faith, right? That's kind of the, you know, you say you have this and I have that. They're trying to make a gifts split here. You have works and I have faith. So if someone has needs, I'll pray for them and you pay for them. All right? Go to so-and-so, they'll pay for But I will pray for you all day long for your needs, you know? And so what he's saying is, no, like, again, real plainly here, will you show me your faith apart from works? Well, I got one better. My faith is real because it has substance. There's something to it. My lifestyle reflects it. In verse 19, bad reason number two. Some people are like, well, hey, I've, I've thrown my lot in with the right God. He says, you say that you believe that God is one. What James is saying is some of you, particularly this, this converted Judy, uh, Jewish population, were like, you know, had great pride in praying and believing in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, that, that they claimed that they believed in the one true God. And they would use the Shema as a way of this rhythmic prayer of reminding and confessing their true belief. And some people are like, James, you can't touch me. You can't make me do anything because I, I have voted for the right God. I have believed in the right God. And what James says here is, oh, well, good for you. The demons believe in that same God, but, but they're actually afraid, and you're not. Even the demons have a better belief in this God because they at least shudder. He goes on in 20. He says, this is why he calls him a foolish person. That's pretty harsh language. He's, you're so foolish that you would think that faith apart from works, he says, don't you see that a faith apart from works, he uses this word in our English translation, it's useless. It's actually the adjective of the same Greek noun as works. He's saying is your faith apart from works isn't workable. It doesn't do anything for you. And so James is really taking them to task of just saying, well, Faith is more than mental assent. It is backed by the things and the ways that we live. This next part, he then kind of transitions into this bit about Abraham. This is bad theology number three. Some people had really taken on Paul's, you know, truth doctrine of I'm justified by faith alone. Well, look, Paul even says it. Abraham, Old Testament, I'm justified by faith alone. 
But what James here begins to press into is, yes, Abraham was justified by faith alone, but you know what? He also demonstrated that same faith through his obedience. Do you remember that time when God asked him to sacrifice his son? Well, he obeyed that command. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but I'm gonna spoil it for you. Isaac wasn't sacrificed. You know, there's something else that transpired. But what James is saying is if we actually look at Abraham's life and the way that the narrative of his faith played out, not only did he believe God, but then he followed and trusted God with his life. And then he goes, oh, I'll give you another second proof text here. Let's go to the person of Rahab, a foreigner, who again put her faith in Yahweh God, but she backed it up too through obedience. Let's go back to that illustration. Now let's imagine, once you're set free, the city now knows about your incredible talent and says, you know what, we want a beautiful mural out there at Wooster Green. And we're going to commission, we're going to pay you to do that. And so you're now commissioned by the city to create something beautiful, representing the history of the city and all this kind of stuff. And you put something together, you make something beautiful. And there's going to be a big commissioning ceremony and, you know, our unveiling ceremony. And so everyone from the town comes out to see your beautiful work. You're recognized for it. And at the very end, that benefactor comes up and says to you, this is why I set you free. We're set free for a reason, for a purpose, not to do whatever we want, but to actually live out gospel community, gospel economy towards one another. Again, to kind of land the plane like with our big idea that holy community is evidenced by this living faith. We're set free that we would have a life that is pregnant with works, that is full with works, rife with works, that we would display our active living moment by moment faith in God. So what does it look like for us today? I mean, maybe our paragraph here, if James were to write to us, might look a little different. You know, the things that we struggle with might be a little different. Um, and so I want to kind of press into that. And I, I'm going to gloss over a couple of things. And this is just to give some examples, uh, not to, I don't, just to, maybe some food for thought for, for us to like kind of consider of how is it that we might struggle with meeting the needs of one another today? In what ways might we make excuses to actually care for the needs of, of each other? Leslie Newbing, Newbington, who was a, uh, was a missionary, pastor, missiologist, he spent decades over in India planting churches and building up the church there. After his missionary work in India, he came back to the UK and began to work with the church there. And something that he says that he noticed was he said, you know, the temptation of the church when you go to, you know, an unevangelized population is to colonize them. You bring the gospel, but then you try to make them look like you, okay? That's the temptation of, of, of missionary work in, in a, a country or population that currently does not have the gospel in it. But what he noticed back in the UK where the church was prevalent and the gospel and gospel communities were prevalent, he said the temptation of the church is to conform. It's for the church to actually manipulate their message, to try to look more like the culture in order to be relevant, in order to get out of the seat of the table, in order for it to be able to be a part of the dialogue or to be validated. And you notice that a lot of churches were making concessions on real doctrine and upholding and living out real doctrine because they allowed the world and world ideas to come in and change and manipulate how they were living amongst one another. We, we at Covenant, you and I, we face a temptation to manipulate our theology so we don't have to do uncomfortable things. 
Each and every single one of us, we are faced with temptation to manipulate and change our theology, whatever reasoning it might is, however it is that we read the scriptures and interpret that on our own, or whatever ideas we want to bring from the outside in. And oftentimes we do that so that we can really alleviate the responsibility we have to care for one another. So we don't have to do things that feel uncomfortable to us. You know, uh, I was raised in the church, but a lot of my, you could say, theology was really uh, informed, you could say, by conservative political ideals. It felt like being a Republican and being a Christian were like pretty interwoven with one another. I remember early on uh, even hearing someone say, hey, we all ought to be capitalists because that's the closest thing that the Bible teaches. I mean, you can decide to agree with that or not agree with that if you want to. I'm just saying that politics and political ideas and and faith and what the Bible taught were pretty inbred. But the fact is that that's not true. Capitalistic ideas are not gospel ideas. If I can just sort of be somewhat generic here, sometimes like there's this, this concept that, you know, it's best for people to like go it alone because if, you know, if they face difficulties on their own, they'll become stronger for it. And those who have need, if, if they become dependent, well, they'll just be lazy, and we're not really helping them. And really, if we use that line of reasoning, it oftentimes allows us and gives ourselves permission to be stingy. But when you read the scriptures, you read the life of Christ, there is not permission to be stingy. There is not any way where I get to just sort of focus on my own thing and do my own thing and just kind of lock this thing down. I am called to be generous, to be open-handed, to give abundantly from what God has given me to those who have need. Now, if I'm going to attack capitalism, let me also somewhat say something about socialism, too. Back in this time, the emperor would go from city to city. And as the emperor came into the city, there was fanfare and a circus that he brought along with it. And the poor would come out to, uh, to get food from the emperor. The emperor would throw food out to the poor in order to help feed their needs. Well, now the thing is that the emperor did this claiming to be the son of God. The emperor said, I am of the pantheon of the gods. Who provides for you? I do. Look to me. Let me give you some bread and you give me your allegiance. And so oftentimes in this day, it was easy to say, well, the emperor will provide for you. The emperor will give you food. Look to him, not to one another. And for us, there can be a temptation of like, well, our government will take care of you or the church office will take care of you. Oh, you have a need? Go email Veronica. She'll hook you up. And it relieves me of personal responsibility to say, what is God asking me to do to care for you? The gospel economy runs across very different lines than any sort of political economy that we might be able to come up with. Ancient Hebrew historian Susan Sorek sees in this passage what is known as the ancient kind of uh, system of community called hesed. It's living in loving kindness to one another. Loving kindness. We don't have an English equivalent to that word, but I think it's appropriate to say loving, caring, compassionate, kindness, active, doing, caring for you in practical ways. The Apostle John says this in 1 John. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet chooses to close his, his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk or in deed and in truth. That conversation I had with that guy that evening that he called me and asked for help had nothing to do necessarily with the amount of time I spent or what I did. I withheld my heart from lovingly and kindly entering into his pain and coming alongside and bearing his burden with him. This has said loving kindness is marked by personal responsibility, generosity, willingness, trust, and joyful giving. And those are the things that we see in scriptures. As one theologian kind of sums it up, he says something along the lines of, every one of us trusts God to provide for the community. We trust God to provide for the people of covenant here. Because of that, we therefore give and receive each one of us, what he, he or she is moved by God to exchange in good conscience. So as you have a need in good conscience, I consider what is my responsibility towards you? What can I give to help your need and vice versa? This is this gospel economy that James is putting before the church and says, hey, we have the opportunity to live into this. Well, a couple of kind of parameters here in regards to application. Okay, so how is it that we can like begin to, to live this house? How do we focus our attention to actually do this maybe practically today? One, we have to acknowledge that there is an in-house, like there's an in-house focus here. James says, if a brother or sister is lacking, and so while the church does care for those who don't know Jesus, those who are on the outside, we do pay particular special attention to those who are our members, who those who are in our faith. You know, my kids can come home and they can have all kinds of notes from their teachers or I can get all kinds of great reports from their coaches about how responsible they are and respectful they are. I can hear about how well they treat their friends, but if they don't respect their mom, it means squat. It's parenting advice. They can do all that stuff that's nice on the outside, but if they can't respect their mom and if they can't love their siblings, that is no good. I know, as their dad, who cares about them, that if they can respect their mom and love one another, the outside will take care of itself. They will do those things as they move out into the rest of the world. And so, yes, James is saying, hey, we have to pay attention. Jesus even says, how will the world know you? They'll know you by your love for one another. Secondly, the church also pays particular attention to the marginalized, Here it's to the poor, to those who can't feed themselves, to those who cannot clothe themselves. Even all the way back in Isaiah in the Old Testament, God chastises people saying, hey, you want to know what real, true, pure religion is? It's this. He says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from them? Do not give yourself an out from the obligation of caring for them, of withholding your heart and your life from them. It's all over scriptures. We are to give ourselves to one another and to meet each other's needs, and particularly those who have certain types of of needs. And for us, yes, you know, as we have poor and we have needs, we want to meet those needs. But I think, too, we need to pay attention to widows, single parents who are among us, and singles, particularly young adults, There's a whole generation of young adults, and we have a lot of college students actually starting to filter into covenant who have been raised in broken homes, who come from 
dysfunctional families, families where they did not receive the type of fatherly love that God would have them receive. And they come into our home looking to be loved, looking to be embraced, looking for someone to extend relationship and fellowship to them. And we, who are in healthy families, need to be in a position of extending that and inviting them into our home and into our life that we can extend to them the fatherly love that God wants to show them through us. We have to pay particular attention to marginalized populations. It is easy for the church to become a country club. It It is easy for us to rally around those who, like me, who's a pastor here, if I have a need, probably the whole church will rally around me. I'm known. But there are some people here who are easily forgotten, who are easily overlooked. We need to be very diligent to be mindful of them. So there is this responsibility in community to being in community with one another to like be known. And some of us, you know, we maybe would love to be generous, but we don't know anybody in the community. And, and that's our responsibility to begin to build some of those relationships. You know, if you're like, hey, I don't know anyone, I don't know any needs. Well, maybe you need to begin to build some friendships. Maybe begin to engage a community group that you might get to know some people then you would begin to know some needs. And vice versa, I've seen people be bitter at the church. The church doesn't give, provide for me. The church wasn't there for me. But they're far off too. They aren't close relationally to people that they can ask or that people might know. They just kind of expect people to know. And so we must be in meaningful relationship with one another if we're going to be able to know each other's needs and then be able to, be able to give and receive to one another. Well, I'm going to end this way beautiful story of one of our very own community groups that is led by uh, Dwight and Tony Carey. This happened just a couple months ago where there was a single mom with her son who are a part of their community group, and both of them contracted COVID, and the son had to actually be hospitalized because of uh, breathing issues that he had. And he was isolated in the hospital. Like, no one could go and visit him, not even his mom. And he was there by himself, I think, for like over a week. Mom also had to take, who's a single mom, who also had to take time off of work. You can imagine for her, the strain emotionally for her as her son is in the hospital and not well. And for her financially, of what that's gonna be like for her to be able to pay these bills. Well, her community group, the Carrie community group rallied around her. And community groups aren't 50 people. There's like 10 or 12 adults. And amongst these 10 or 12 adults, they begin to talk and talk to the church. And they begin to gather financial resources for this family. They raise over $1,200 to provide for them. And then not only that, some of us even began to text and communicate with the son who was by himself in the hospital to make sure he didn't feel relationally alone. To make sure that he felt connected, that we were in it with him. That is a picture of community group. That is a picture of gospel economy and community together. And one of the reasons why I wanted to become the community life pastor here at Covenant is because I think the future of the church is in community groups, is in that tight relationship where we can know one another, we can be mindful of each other, and we can exchange and give. It's not gonna be from people coming and filling a form and sending an email to an office that then meets their needs. It's gonna be us being in it together and sharing the burdens together. So with that being said, If you're not part of a community group, I would highly encourage you to get connected to one. You can email me. With that being said, let me just say, James spurs us on towards love and good deeds. Covenant Church, would we be a church who is excited, who looks forward to completing our faith?
with the ways that we care for one another. Would you pray with me? God, your word, your word at times is a piercing sword. I felt it. God, I've felt times that you've convicted me of my own stinginess and stubbornness, my own short arms that are not willing to extend and meet the needs of those in your family. And yet, God, you call us because you love us, because you're mad, but because you say, I have something beautiful for you. I want you to be part of something wonderful, of kingdom living. And so, Father, as your word meets, eat, meet, meets each and every single one of us where we're at, God, would you remind us of your favor? Would you remind us of your provision that we might be in faith, be very proud, that there would be people here at Covenant in our faith family who do not lack in anything. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.